This episode of Gospel Bound is sponsored by Zondervan Reflective, publisher of Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation by Colin Hansen. Learn more at timothykellerbook.com. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. When it comes to theologians that contemporary church leaders should be reading, I don't know of a more important one than Herman Bavinck. That's what Tim Keller said in his endorsement of James Eglinton's 2020 book, Bavinck, A Critical Biography. Keller first read Bavinck some 50 years ago in class with Roger Nicole at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. But not much of Bavinck's voluminous work has been translated until recent years. So we live in a renaissance of appreciation for this Dutch theologian who died in 1921. Probably no one is more responsible for this renaissance than James Eglinton, the Meldrum Senior Lecturer in Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh. In this special season of Gospel Bound, we're exploring in depth several key influences that appear in my book, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. So I'm excited to welcome Eglinton, who is also a fellow for the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. We'll talk about neo-Calvinism and whether he disagrees with Bavink about anything, as well as a beginner's reading list and his upcoming projects. James, thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thanks, Kelvin. It's great to join you. Great to be here. Uh, all right, big question. Why all the sudden interest in Bavink? Is this all a conspiracy led by you? <laughs> That's a great question. And no, it's, it's not all my doing. I can't really take too much credit for it. Um, you know, something that's fascinating about Bavink, he died in 1921, as you said. Um, but if you look at something like, for example, Christianity Today as a, you know, an important media publication in the 20th century in the English-speaking world, and you look back over the last 50 years or so, you find pretty big-name people who are in the know um, who cite this mostly untranslated Dutch theologian, Herman Bavink. So I'm thinking about people like Carl F. Henry, Paul S. Rees, um, Kenneth Cancer. So you do have some awareness of him, that he's there, but mostly inaccessible because his stuff was in Dutch. Uh, but the people who could read it um, made that known, that it was great stuff. So there was a knowledge there that filtered through. And there were some works by Bavink that were available in English. Um, works like Our Reasonable Faith or Magnalia Day, which is now available under the title The Wonderful Works of God. So people did have some access to those works. And those who read it generally really liked it. People like Tim Keller, as a student at Gordon Conwell, read Our Reasonable Faith in that phase of his life. And um, so there was aware this awareness that there was that this was part of a much bigger, um, more fascinating picture of untranslated works. And his, his most important work is his Reformed Dogmatics, four-volume work in, in Christian theology. It's, it's a really superb work. It's a modern classic in the Christian tradition. And that came out in English between 2003 and 2008, published by Baker Academic. And I think that was the game changer. So I say that I don't take credit for this because I didn't have a hand in that. And I was a seminary student at exactly the right time 
when those works were coming out. So I went to seminary in 2004 and um, just before volume one came out. And then I just started my PhD when the, the fourth volume came out. So I happened to step onto this wave that I played no part in creating and I've been happily riding the wave ever since. Um, had you had you spoke, uh, were you speaking Dutch at the time or did you pick that up because of your studies in Bavink? Yeah, so I learned Dutch as an adult. I, I had no knowledge of it at all growing up. Um, but I, when I was in my last year of seminary, I was thinking a lot about a PhD afterwards and thinking about Bavink because I was reading him and thought this was such great stuff. And I knew that I would have to learn to read Dutch because even with the dogmatics in English, it's still a translation and there's still so much work that's untranslated. So I knew I had to learn to read it. So I spent the last year of my seminary training also learning to read Dutch on the side. And then I, I kept on... Um, trying to learn it over the three years of my PhD. And then after that, I, I went Dutch. I moved to the Netherlands for three years. I was a postdoc over there. I was on the faculty in Kampen, which I really loved. So I spent three years just being completely immersed in Dutch life, Dutch language. Church was in Dutch. Our friends were all in Dutch. I read Dutch newspapers, watched Dutch TV, spoke Dutch at work. So um, came back after three years like that, feeling like I was a, I'd become some kind of pseudo-Dutchman. Uh, but yeah, I loved that experience. It was great. Got to say, the phrase going Dutch means something entirely different in the United <laughs> States than it does in how you just described it right there. Well, the um, thing is, I'm, I'm Scottish and we're, we're equally frugal. So, um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it doesn't, have, it doesn't have that connotation here. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, tell us, James, what does it mean to be modern and orthodox? Uh, basically, what I'm getting at is for you to briefly summarize neo-Calvinism and how you see it in Tim Keller. Mm, sure. So I'll, I'll go for the what is neo-Calvinism part first, because I think that will set up the answer to the question of what is modern and orthodox, and then how do we get yeah. to Tim Keller? So neo-Calvinism, um, something that I, I find myself saying a lot and have done over the years is that it's not new Calvinism, N-E-W. <laughs> the N-E-O is something quite different. So, yeah. you know, you've had your own that's hands. My, and, that's my fault. Yeah, that, Sorry that, that's that. your, yeah, <laughs> that's okay. We, we forgive you. Um, but, you know, so I work as, as a scholar of neo-Calvinism uh, in Edinburgh and every so often, particularly with um, talking to Americans about my work, people will say things like, oh, that's really interesting that someone at Edinburgh University works on John MacArthur and John Piper and those guys. And I have to tell them, no, that's that's new. And neo is a completely different thing. So neo-Calvinism is originally a Dutch movement, began in the late 19th century and then grew in the early 20th century. So it's centered on figures like Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink. And um, it was an attempt to use the historic resources of the reformed faith um, to drive the Christian faith forward into the modern age. So the neo part refers to the fact that it's that it is new. It's trying to do something new with a much older tradition and to do that in the context of the late modern age of the late 19th century and early 20th century. So I guess, you know, if, if we're thinking about that as neo-Calvinism, we could maybe think of like John Calvin and 16th century Geneva as paleo-Calvinism. So Calvinism, if we want to call it that, or Reformed Christianity of the 16th century, faced a lot of big questions that were particular to its context. How should Protestants relate to Catholics? If you're in Calvin's Geneva, big questions about religious refugees and immigration. Um, big questions around what do you do with people who are explicitly heretical? So a figure like Miguel Servetus, who was anti-Trinitarian and who right. was burned at the stake in 16th century Geneva. Um, so the, there are very big contextual questions that the Reformed faith has to answer. 
But neo-Calvinism is in a completely different context. It's in the late 19th century in, in the Netherlands. It's facing big questions around mass democracy, which is a new thing historically in the Netherlands, our Western culture. Big questions around industrialization, uh, modern technology. Big questions around evolution, the natural sciences. Um, and rather than questions around what you do with someone who is anti-Trinitarian, what do you do with atheists? Um, how do you live alongside people now who are, would have been unimaginable in Calvin's world? Um, so the the neo-Calvinists are not just trying to do paleo-Calvinism in their own day and age. They're trying to drive the tradition forward. And sometimes that means challenging things within the tradition. So if you think of Calvin's support for um, the, the, the state execution of an anti-Trinitarian and the view that the state should be um, you know, busy with the pursuit of heretics. Mm. Um, Calvin, uh, Calvin was in that context, but Bavink and Kuyper, that was one thing that they very explicitly revised within their tradition, mm. that they didn't think the state should do this. And they actually revised their own confession, their church's confessional documents to change that. So uh, um, so there's some things that they, that they challenge in the tradition, but lots of other things that they expand because the questions didn't exist in the paleo-Calvinist era. Yeah. So that's the, what is neo-Calvinism. Um, the modern and orthodox thing that you raise, and this is a big thing for Tim, and it comes across very clearly in your book. So a, a central claim that you hear a lot when you talk about neo-Calvinism or talk to neo-Calvinists is the idea that, that Christianity or that neo-Calvinism is both orthodox and modern. So the orthodox part means that it is... Um, it's not a, a kind of revisionist Christianity where you know we've jettisoned everything that came before the modern age and, and we're just reinventing everything all the time um, in order to be modern. Um, so it's orthodox. It's, it's the historic Christian faith, but it's also modern. It's very recognizably not um, just 4th century Christianity or 16th century Paleo-Calvinism. So it has both of those things. So really it's uh, it's a historical sensibility. It's a way of thinking about history. So maybe a way that listeners could think about it is through this question. Um, do you think that there is, that, or that there was, um, a historical golden age where the conditions were perfect for what it means to follow Jesus, to be a Christian, to be part of the church? And if that age has now passed, then are you fighting with tooth and nail to cling onto it and to live in some kind of a bubble like that? Um, or do you think that there's actually never been a one single historical period or cultural context in which the conditions are perfect for being a Christian? And instead, every historical period, every culture that you could live in will present distinct challenges. Um, it'll be difficult to be a Christian in different ways across different cultures, rather than the idea that there is just some um, golden age in the past. So neo-Calvinism has a distinct historical sensibility that says that there is no golden age, um, that it's certainly more difficult in some cultures to be a Christian than in some others. And a, a big part of the, the impetus historically for neo-Calvinism emerging was the, the view that in revolutionary France, um, with, with a very distinct mm. kind of secularism that was being imposed, it was really difficult to be a Christian there. Yeah. Um, more so than in the Netherlands, and that's and they were trying to fight to not to make it so difficult to be a Christian in the Netherlands, um, and and that's a big factor in the backdrop to neo Calvinism. But they don't think that there is a golden age, and they and they didn't think that um, mm. that we just need to carry on living as though it's 16th century Geneva. And in fact, if you could be transplanted back there, you'd have to. They, I think, to, you know, to follow Jesus well, you'd have to ask some really hard questions about a lot of things that that were uh, unchallenged or more normal in 16th century Geneva. Um, so the idea is that, that that 
that there is no golden age. And instead, the nature of orthodoxy is that it's not bound to or constrained by or encapsulated right. by or coterminous with right. any one particular culture of the past. Yeah. Instead, Christian orthodoxy is something that puts down roots wherever it lands. And as it does so, um, it will affirm things that are good and true and beautiful wherever it finds them in whichever culture, but it will also challenge things that are not good and true and beautiful. And then as the roots spread throughout that soil, wherever it lands, um, it will rearrange what it finds and it will make it a, a better version of, of what it found. Um, so the, the Orthodox and Modern Impulse then says that if you want to be an Orthodox Christian and be part of the Church of the Ages, you have to be a part of the Church in your age and not act out to kind of, not turn the Church into some kind of, you know, like, historical reenactment museum or something like that, mm. where outside it's the 21st century, but you step in and, and you're back into the 16th century. Um, and this gets us to Tim Keller, actually, because this is yeah. a sensibility that he found reading mm. neo-Calvinist texts, where he, um, where he, this, this was something that really chimed with him, the desire to be a child of your own age, but also a child of God in that age. And to see that this is what Christians have been doing in every age. And I think then that's, so neo-Calvinism provided Tim with a lot of the theological um, underpinning in order to to try and do what he did at Redeemer, for example. Mm. You know, what's interesting there, James, and by the way, that was an amazing answer. Thank you. I gave you an impossible question, and you answered it so amazingly well. Um, the I think what what's so interesting here and why it can be confusing to people is that so many of us who know aspects of neo-Calvinism in the United States know it tied to an ethnic immigrant culture, which does the exact thing that you're describing of, of prist, uh, kind of a pristine golden era that we want to go back to. So that's kind of odd that a lot of that Dutch theology that came as you know through immigration suffer some of the very problems that neo-Calvinism neo-Calvinism was addressed to try to resolve and deal with there. But Tim Keller did not grow up in that subculture at all, didn't have any connection to it. But what he did grow up in and came to faith in as a young, as a young man was the Jesus movement, which was exactly that kind of sensibility of being evangelical and having uh, an orthodox belief, a high view of conversion, but a high view of contextualization as well, of and an adaptation to modernity, which in the American context was rather new. Um, yes, there had always been some adaptations. Billy Graham had been an adapter. Dwight Moody had been an adapter. Billy Sunday had been an adapter. I mean, there had always been some of that. But still, there was a sensibility that our church traditions should be more static um, in a lot of ways. But the Jesus movement, I think, kind of upended that um, probably finally in the United States. Um, there are some good things and some bad things <laughs> about that. But that's one of the things that stood out to me in writing the book was just how much of Tim's sensibilities had been set by his encounter with a historic theological system um, that was consistent with Scripture, but in a contemporary context that was very kind of missionally minded. Um, so I just hadn't quite thought of that the way that, you know, but your answer really helped me with that. Now, one of the other things that's, that I think um, that Tim appreciates so much about Bavink and, and the rest of us do as well is that 
he seemed to be able to anticipate, and that's why one reason he's so helpful to us today, the post-Christian turn that would come to so much of Europe and the broader West in the 20th and even into the 21st century. And it seems possible that some of his own neo-Calvinist colleagues, maybe perhaps Abraham Kuyper, didn't quite anticipate that change the way that Bavinck did. Could you explain what what he you know what he saw and what makes him so relevant to read today as a result? Yeah, sure, I can try. So I think in that context, you know, the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, there were a lot of people who were trying to make sense of what they saw happening around them, which was the decline of Christianity in Europe, at least. And Europe is way ahead of, of what was happening in North America. So uh, over the last year or so, I, I read a book um, by a guy called Oswald Spengler, which is really fascinating. He was a German, wrote a book that in English was called The Decline of the West. Um, yeah. And it's this like huge macro history, a theory of civilizations that they all have a 2000 year lifespan and uh, they go through a phase of cultural creation and then establish civilization and then decline, and then they'll be replaced by something different. And he had this grand theory of this as the, the pattern of history of civilizations across the world. And for him then, Christianity is coming to the very end of its last phase and it's gonna die out. And you also have the secularization hypothesis in the background as well, um, which was quite a common idea in the backdrop to Bavink and Kuiper, that the more that Western culture um, becomes rational and technologized and secularized and um, you won't even have to try and kill off religion it will just die off it will wither on the vine and people will give up on it voluntarily and people at that point who believed in the secularization hypothesis really sincerely believed that if you could fast forward 100 years you know get in the delorean and zoom forward a century you just you wouldn't find religion anymore and you had other backgrounds in the backdrop to this in Germany. You had David Friedrich Strauss writing that we now live in this new age of the true religion is really science now. And we should say that we're no longer Christians. And so you have all this happening in the background. And I think what's really interesting with Bavink is that, and, and with Kuiper as well, I think, is that he could see some of the, the, the useful insights in their critiques, but without the, the failure to believe the gospel that flows through all of those things in terms of Spengler or the secularization hypothesis or David Friedrich Strauss. Um, so what you find with Bavink is that he, he's very aware of the challenges of the church in the West. And I think especially in the last couple of decades of Bavink's life, and he starts to speak much more about evangelism and so on. Um, but he's really aware of all of that. He's also very aware of the distinct challenge that Nietzsche poses to Western culture and therefore to Christianity. So Nietzsche was a completely novel kind of atheist. Um, Bavink had engaged with other atheists in the 1880s and 90s, but they were, you know, not very rigorous atheists. You know, they thought we we smooth out the picture of modern life by removing God from it, and then everything else stays the same, and you make more sense of modern life without God. Right. Whereas, uh, you know, but the values all still stay the same, and the kind of world we want to live in stays the same. Whereas for Bavink, he thought Nietzsche was correct if we remove God, and, and particularly yeah. Jesus, uh, in, at the center of how we think about the mm. world, then everything has to be revalued, and we have no idea what will come after. And I think what's so insightful about Bavink and the way that he approaches this is that he he basically set up his expectation of the 20th century, not as you know the secularization hypothesis and religion will just die out. Um, he also didn't think that we would all just become Nietzscheans across the 20th century, mm. but he thought that the 20th century would be a really colossal struggle within the Western soul between Christ and Nietzsche, and that Western people, having been formed for, you know, 
century after century by Christianity and suddenly having this big jolt mm. of, I mean, he said that Nietzsche had had revealed what, what was there unconsciously in many Western hearts. You know, with, all of a sudden there's this jolt of Nietzsche in Western culture as well. And, and he really tugs at um, things that are so normal to Western people. Um, so I think, for example, I, I mean, to take this from the present day, um, if I think of Western Europe of a context like my own in Scotland, um, over the last couple of years in the COVID pandemic, we have um, been willing to take a huge hit socially, economically, um, to preserve the health of our extreme elderly population uh, as those who were most at risk and willing to sacrifice a tremendous amount for them. Right. That has now, you know, we've moved on from that and society has opened up and, you know, life kind of feels like it's back to normal. But the first thing that a lot of politicians in Scotland are trying to do now that life has gone back to normal is to bring in uh, assisted suicide. Oh. And that is primarily focused on the same people that we've just given up so much in a very Christ-like way, actually, as a society. You know, that, that's Christ, actually, forming mm. our moral formation to, to love the elderly. But if you read Nietzsche, read his Twilight of the Idols, um, he has nothing that's very good to say about people who are really elderly. Um, so then that's Nietzsche talking about another part of our imagination. Mm. And the, the fact that these two things go side by side um, in, in society and that, and that we're really kind of torn between the two, um, I think is, is a really striking example of the kind of future that Bavink foresaw. So Bavink's really useful because he doesn't have a simplistic, you know, we've just got back to the ancient Roman world and we're being thrown to the lions. But he also doesn't think, oh, everything's fine. You know, we're still, um, you know, we still live in this very free Christian society. Instead, he saw that it's a very mixed society. Um, and you asked the point about Kuiper there as well, which I think is an interesting question because I used to find Bavink a lot more insightful than Kuiper on this, but I think at that point I'd probably read too much early Kuiper and not enough late Kuiper. Ah, that's so, interesting. Um, okay. So in the last 15 years of Kuiper's life, which are the last 15 years after, so he was Prime Minister of the Netherlands, again, for listeners who don't know that. So he was Prime Minister between 1901 and 1904. And a lot of people at that point, you know, thought, great, we have this neo-Calvinist Prime Minister and, um, you know, this is, uh, everything's going really well for, for Christianity in the Netherlands. But then he only lasted one term and often and then after that, Kuiper himself realized that, um, that the church is, is really facing, you know, sailing into mm. troubled waters culturally. And I think he caught up with a lot of the stuff that Bavink had, uh, had already uh. seen. And then if you read Kuiper's writings in the last 15 years of his life, I think that he is actually remarkably insightful cultural critique and commentator and provides really amazing missiological resources for helping the church in, in that mixed culture to think through, um, you know, how do you reach people? who are like third generation on church. I mean, he saw that happening in the Netherlands in his, in his own lifetime. And um, that's something that I think happens in Scotland, um, you know, like maybe in the 1970s or 80s, so way after Kuiper's time. And he's, but he's actively thinking through these issues. So I think I'm, I'm much more um, sympathetic to the late Kuiper actually as, as maybe more of a resource mm -hmm. than we've given him credit for. So the key work there is Pro Reggae Volume 1. Okay. published in that the big Lexham series of works uh, by Kuiper and his public theology. And it's fascinating. Hmm. Well, you know, one of the reasons that, well, Kuiper is well known, especially among Americans is because of his lectures at Princeton. Hmm. Um, a lot of people don't know the connections of Bavink to the United States. Um, he was uh, pretty adamant that Calvinism would never flourish in the United States. I'm wondering, <clears throat> do you agree with him? Or would Tim Keller and the example of others disprove his prophecy? Mm. Yeah. Well, 
I guess it's fascinating because Kuiper really saw Calvinism and America as like as made for one another, and the reason for that is that when Kuiper is talking in that in that way, yeah. when he's thinking about Calvinism, he's thinking about a very intentional way to pursue uh, the Christian faith in every area of life. Right. So Calvinism is is the pursuit of the Reformation of of everything that you're doing. So you know if you're running a business, if you're making a sculpture, if you're cooking dinner, um, whatever you're doing, that, that, that you want to do that uh, quorum deo, you want to do it before the face of God, for God's glory. And that's a really intentional way to be, especially for, for Kuiper in neo-Calvinism because of the neo part that's happening in the modern age that's trying to um, remove the um, Christianity from each part of life. So to do that intentionally is, is a very deliberate thing uh, and a very modern thing. Um, and American culture for Kuiper at that point, you know, it's, it's a century younger than it is now even. And for a European, it's still quite young. Um, but it's this culture that's busy with its own self-creation. Um, it's trying to invent um, intentionally how to how to exist and how to function in every you know sphere of its existence. So he thought that those two things were a really perfect combination, and that if Americans could just hear about Calvinism, then Calvinism would would make America great. Not again, but just make it great for the first time. <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> but um, but Bavinck didn't think he, he was really pessimistic about Calvinism. Uh, a neo-Calvinism in North America. And his reason for that was that when Bavinck is talking about Calvinism there, he's not so much thinking about, you know, living intentionally for the glory of God in every area of your life. What he's thinking about is much more a Calvinist way of understanding salvation, that you contribute nothing, or what you contribute is just um, all the reasons that, that you have failed God and that you're a rebel against them. And you can't pull your, your bootstraps. So none of those very intuitively American ways of thinking um, transfer over. And in fact, they're kind of impediments to what Calvinism has to say, that instead of pulling yourself up, up by your bootstraps, that you trust in a salvation that you do not uh, contribute to, you don't earn, you receive by grace alone, and then in gratitude, you respond. Um, he thought that was a very like, un-American way to uh, to think in the first place. And he just didn't think that American culture would predominantly be receptive to it. So he thought that America would be, I mean, he, he would call it a Methodist land, but I guess, you know, again, a hundred years on, you might think of it more in terms of it's more of an Arminian kind of country where it's more receptive to that way of trying to understand salvation. Um, mm. But in terms of this today, and you asked again about Tim. Yeah. Um, so I find, so this is really interesting because um, you know, Tim, uh, when I'm talking to him about neo-Calvinism and America, you know, he, he really thinks that, that American Christianity really needs a good dose of neo-Calvinism, that it provides a lot of great resources that will help the church in North America. But I, my impression from Tim is that maybe he's um, he thinks that American culture is also not tremendously receptive to it, but maybe for different reasons to, to Bavinck. So for Bavinck, it's not receptive because of um, you know, the American culture being a pull yourself up by your bootstraps culture. And that, you know, is, is a, it's just a bit awkward for a Calvinist way of presenting the gospel. But for Tim, I think the impediment is more focused on um, how politically divided America is, um, that it's this country that is organized around, you know, a binary political divide and that creates a very kind of tribal, you know, there, there are two ways to be. And uh, you have to fit within one of the two. And Tim's very well known as a you know, third way thinker. Um, and that's also, uh, um, I think, very closely related to neo-Calvinism, um, which has a distinct way of approaching, again, as part of the orthodox and modern sensibility, actually, that there's no one culture that, that is ever completely coterminous with Christianity. And there's no golden age, there's no golden subculture, there's no golden political movement. 
Um, so for Tim, I think the, 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 the challenge for neo-Calvinism and the thing that makes a lot of Americans uh, just you know a, a bit kind of blind and deaf to what neo-Calvinism tries to put across is that um, that that it gets filtered through a, a binary and again quite tribal lens and neo-Calvinism uh, kind of defies that from the very beginning actually. This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Well, I am really having to restrain myself here because I've got a lot of thoughts about the 19th century, the Methodist character, the Baptist character of the United States, how that played out in the 20th century, the decline of the Methodist church, but the takeover of, of American culture by Methodist impulses, basically secularized Methodism, and then also perspective on new Calvinism and the role of 9-11 in kind of... um turning the United States toward a much darker perspective, um, which seems to be more consistent with um, a Calvinistic explanation of the world. So I'm going to hold back. <laughs> we'll have to do another conversation. We'll have a Keller Center um, a symposium on that topic. Um, a lot of people don't realize your your connections to Tim, going back personally a number of years, or uh, or your connection to the infamous Kuiper Prize incident in 2017, which is a, a key part of my book on Tim. Uh, we know, of course, that Tim did not receive that prize. It was rescinded, though he delivered the talk, and that is his most extensive engagement, at least that I found, with Leslie Newmingen and a missional agenda for the 21st century. What kind of thoughts do you have looking back on that whole um, that whole incident in 2017? Yeah. So, well, I first met Tim in 2008, so we went back a good bit before then. And I first met him at a church planting conference in London that I went down to. And, um, you know, I'd listened to a good bit of his preaching by that point, And I was, I was really impressed with his talks. I thought they were great. And um, so I went over to shake his hand afterwards and just say thanks and told him my name. And he said, don't you have a blog? <laughs> Which I was I was quaking in my shoes because I, I was one of those, you know, nerdy seminary students that, who had a blog back in 2008. And uh, I was mortified that Tim Keller had read my blog, or even that he knew who I was, or that he'd paid attention and remembered. It's so, safe to uh, assume Tim has read everything. Indeed, even stuff that's obscure as that. But, um, <laughs> but he was, fr from then on, he's just been a, a consistent, relentless encourager um, towards me and my work as a you know European, Scottish, Christian pastor in training at that point, theologian afterwards. And uh, so he's he's just been this um, really selfless encourager in the background, which is part of what I appreciate so much about him. Uh, but the Kuiper <laughs> the Kuiper Prize incident at Princeton. So um, so I was so at that point there was the the Kuiper Center at Princeton, uh, which I'd attended for many years as a PhD student and then as a faculty member after that. And um, and I had joined the advisory board. Um, 
for that um, center the year before we give the prize to Tim. So they, they wanted to bring on some European scholars of neo-Calvinism. So George Herring from the Free University of Amsterdam and Kempen also and I joined together at the same time. And the first nominee that we proposed was Tim Keller because it's a prize for excellence in reformed theology and public life. So, um, but then I mean, the, if people want to read the history of, of how that all played out, they, they, can, uh, they can read your book, I guess, because you cover yeah. it very well. Um, but I, I suppose my abiding memories of it were, on the one hand, I mean, Tim's lecture on Leslie Newbegin and the missionary encounter was just stunning. It was <laughs> it was completely great. outstanding. Um, so in that regard, it was memorable in a wonderful way. And um, but also the strangeness of the actual event, because he, he came and gave the lecture and um, and it was wonderful. But the lecture was held in an underground lecture hall. <laughs> for security reasons for security reasons right and they were you know they were checking people at the door for security and um the oh, the, the whole atmosphere was was so completely bizarre and i think especially for a european yeah. um because a couple of years before the prize had gone to jonathan sachs who was the chief rabbi of the commonwealth um and uh, and you know from a british perspective he was fairly conservative in the jewish community on issues around for example gender and sexuality and in his lifetime got quite a lot of flack from uh, more uh, i guess liberal jews because of his views on those things and also was not a christian either was a jew right. um and he gave a I, I gave a fantastic lecture and it was it was a privilege to meet him and I, so he's someone whose writings i really valued and loved and it was just it was an honor to to meet him um but you know there were no protests for or similar kinds of issues in Jonathan Sachs, but then for Tim Keller, it's underground with security on the door because of security uh, risks. And um, again, for a European, it was just so weird culturally. I mean, I, I still don't really have words to describe other than bizarre. Uh, I felt extremely foreign um, that because of different ideas around ordination, for example, or which Presbyterian denomination you're in, that you might not be safe attending a lecture at Princeton. It was just, it was bizarre. Um, but it was fascinating to be there as part of the history, um, and, and it was a wonderful lecture. Uh, but I think I mean Tim came out of came out of it with a lot of credit for coming and giving a very uh, you know a, a superb lecture, but delivering it very graciously, not really making an issue of the the weirdness. But I was very struck by the weirdness. Yeah, that is that lecture is very much worth listening to and reading, and I give extensive engagement with it because I think it is one of the landmark messages of Tim's life and one that gives us a lot to really continue to interact with going forward. Uh, 2017 was around the kind of peaking of the worst of campus life um, in terms of cancellation and protests and a lot of the stuff that Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff wrote about in their book, uh, Cuddling of the American Mind. Um, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the Methodist-Baptist dynamic. Um, as you know, the United States is just so big and so varied that it's very difficult to understand because you can't tell if the place is incredibly reactionary and conservative or if it's incredibly um, progressive and even puritanical. And then you have these cross currents working in different ways where, where Baptists are both traditional but also very liberal in terms or progressive in terms of their views of history and views of um, of kind of technology, for example. And a Methodist might be very libertarian in terms of ethics on sex, but then extremely aggressive on ethics when it comes to the environment or on 
on uh, trans uh, ideology. So it's very confusing, and I can only I can only imagine. Um, I, just a couple quick questions to wrap up. Um, I I I had all these aspirations of keeping this interview short, and then. I actually want to make it way longer, but <laughs> we're going to have to keep those, James, for another day. Um, so do you disagree with Bavink on anything? Oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> but uh, so listeners will be happy to know. But, you know, the way that I that I tried to learn from him at the beginning and learn to read him was to apprentice myself to him. Yeah as a theologian yeah. and that was that was what really drew me to do the long deep dive in the phd and i i was very intentional at that point about not wanting to rush in you know 25 year old me who knew nothing to try to find well this is what i disagree on and this is where he's right uh, who am i to judge um at least at that stage even now maybe but um what i wanted to do at the beginning was to just listen and try to uh, try to earn the right to become a conversation partner in the first place and to do that i wanted to spend a few years reading him as thoughtfully as i could just to try and see how does he join the dots because the thing that makes a lot of these great thinkers great is that they're that they're really creative intellectually and they they can make connections that take you by surprise yeah. and they can you know if you come in with a very like, rigid grid that you've learned by the age of 25 and you're going to judge everyone by how consistently they fit that grid you will be pretty miserable in a PhD, I think, or it won't go on to accomplish very much. So I wanted just to, to try and earn the right to have to converse with him by trying to understand him well enough. Because if you don't understand someone, your critique doesn't really count for very much, I think. And I try and instill that in my own students as well. So um, I wasn't really concerned too much with agreement or disagreement initially. I wanted to try and become a conversation partner. And having done so, I guess the the conversation that I have with him, uh, and he's one, you know, he's my theological life's main conversation partner, I think, is that I become very aware that he is a child of his time and I'm, I'm a child of mine. And there's so much, rather than kind of simple disagreement or agreement, there's so much about the world that he was thinking in that's just not the world I live in. So you know, he was very much a part of the Dutch colonial project, uh, you know, a big supporter of that. That's that's such a foreign world to me that when I read that, I just can't, can't really get on board. And it's so foreign to me. Um, and you know that that's a really big thing for him in the in a lot of his life. And um, so, the, of course, there are points of disagreement. But the way that I try and um, yeah. understand those is really through um, him as my you know, most valued, trusted conversation partner. But as well as that, the way that, that through that conversation, it's helped me understand what he was that he disagreed with himself, that there's development in his thoughts, mm, that when he knows that he's dying after his heart attack, he then starts to curate the parts of his written legacy that he thinks really need to be uh, read by mm. Christians in the coming generations. And there are things that he doesn't think are, are top priority. Mm. And there's a lot that he leaves open-ended in his work as well, that he thinks will need to be developed and challenged and changed. So mm. a simple disagreement and agreement is, is not really what I've tried to aim for. But instead, I think, you know, through that conversation, uh, it's like he's, you know, he's looking for people who will come after, who will take the baton and keep on running, who will challenge some of his thinking, who will tidy up loose ends, who will correct things, who will, um, who will push on the things that he left unfinished. So I, I see myself more in that kind of a role as a reader of Bavink in the fashion of Bavink. Wow, that that reminds me a lot, James, of the answer to the question that I got when I first started seminary with Doug Sweeney, one of my favorite scholars, professors. And of course, an expert on Jonathan Edwards, and a lot of this. I, mean, I, I think I think Bavink and, and Edwards have a lot in common. I think they both fit that modern that that modern Orthodox paradigm, 
in there. Um, I mean, we could go on and on about that. But I would say also the rediscoveries of Edwards have a lot in common with the current rediscovery of Bavink. Um, or discovery for a lot of Americans who, and other English speakers who just weren't able to access him in the past. But I asked Doug Sweeney that question as a first-year seminary student in 2007, and he said, oh, gosh, no, I disagree on all kinds of things <laughs> with him. Um, and Doug really does. I mean, he's a Lutheran and has a lot of uh, other views as well. But what I always respected about Doug and still respect is how well he honors him as a scholar and as a Christian in teaching him so that we can understand him, like you said, as a conversation partner before we can begin to develop the the levels of insight that allow us as a conversation partner to disagree uh, with him. And I, I love that approach to theology as well as to, to history and put it together, historical theology. Okay, last question, James, a quick one here. Where does a reader of Bavink begin who's just listen learning about this for the new, st- new first time maybe take us through the first three works that we might want to tackle well i guess you know no reader is just a, a blank slate um and Bavink was very aware of that too so he wrote works at a bunch of different levels for different kinds of reader um i think you know if, if the if the reader in question here is you know a, like a, a church member or you know interested layperson um i think an outstanding work is the wonderful works of god so it's just it's a one volume work um and it's a distillation of his dogmatics and it's really beautifully clear it's thoroughly doxological you know so you read it and the each chapter just sings uh, you know it ends with a worshipful conclusion so it's, it's beautiful almost as devotional reading um and he and it looks like a i mean it's a very thick book you know it looks like a massive tome but actually all of the chapters are, are really short and you can read them all in, in pretty quick time um so the the length of it is a bit deceptive yeah. given that the parts are all quite short so and and Bavink wrote that for people who who didn't have a theology degree but he did assume that you like to read books and that you've got the you know the desire to sit down and work through something that will take you a right. while to go through all the short chapters so right. that's a really amazing book and there's a beautiful edition of it by westminster seminary press um i'd recommend that i think if you're if you are a pastor or if you are a theology student like if you're at seminary um it's really worth investing in his dogmatics four volume work uh, published by baker academic um it's not the kind of thing that's designed for you just to sit down and read it from cover to cover in a single sitting mm. it's more designed to be a reference work that you will always go back to mm. you know it's one of the things that you should always be pulling off your shelf when you know you're trying to think through you know how, how do you understand really big theological ideas dogmas in the christian tradition um and how do you articulate them clearly you know how, how do you get from the exegesis of scripture to the doctrine of the trinity or the two natures of christ or um you know the sacraments or something like that so that's a really outstanding reference work there that Bavink thought himself that you probably need some prior training to get the most out of that. But I think if you have that training, you you should really go, go for it and invest the, the, the time and, and invest the space in your bookshelf, um, <laughs> the space in your bank balance as well in buying yeah. Bavink's thematics. Um, if I can do a shameless plug as well, just because I'm personally invested yeah. in trying to help people understand Bavink. Do it. Um, I think that trying to make sense of the the theology is always helped a lot by having a sense of who the person was who produced it. So um, I think biographies of theologians in general, if they're done well, are really helpful things in order to go on then you know, and read the, the works fruitfully. 
and get them in their context and that helps you you know bridge the gap between this book from 1904 and your life in 2022 so um so I, um so read a read a bavink biography there's one that i could suggest to you <laughs> um came out in 2020 i'll do the plug for you james eglinton's bavink a critical biography with baker highly recommended in fact i, I give the same advice if you're going to jump into luther start with uh start with obermann or or um or Bainton. um i say if you're going to start with edwards start with marsden um, get a sense for the overall perspective, um, the, the life and the times, the situatedness of that person. And I think your, your critical biography of Bavink is very similar uh, to Marsden's on Edwards. And so both of them make for a very interesting read. So my guest here on Gospel Bound has been James Eglinton. You can see why he brought a lot of insight into my and really encouraging feedback in my own work on Timothy Keller, his spiritual and intellectual formation and eager to see his ongoing work in the future through the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics and elsewhere. James, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember... When we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.